Welcome to the interview series, the first podcast by ICMP, the Institute of Contemporary Music Performance in London. I'm back with the second season of interviews, this time focusing on the people that made ICMP a pioneer when it comes to music higher education in the UK, our tutors. Charlie Thomas, my guest on this episode, is one of the creative music production tutors here at ICMP. I had a great time chatting with Charlie as he loves to tell stories and he's always happy to share, especially when it comes to his career and how he ended up working in the industry. Everything started with a song for Charlie. When he listened to Everlong by the Foo Fighters, he knew music would have a special place in his life. Charlie did not see himself becoming a musician and music ended up being just a hobby for quite some time. As the son of two pub owners, Charlie studied for and started his career in the hospitality sector, soon realizing that music was actually what he really wanted to pursue. Not as a musician, but rather as a creative, a producer. Through a short audio engineering course and a big dose of courage, he managed to land an internship at Britannia Row, the studios owned by Pink Floyd. Charlie told me about his career from then on, the challenges, the never-ending learning, and the things that he's most proud of together with quite a lot of advice for up-and-coming producers. His mantra seems to be never say no to opportunities, as they may lead you to incredible things, something that has happened to him when he managed to work at the legendary Abbey Road Studios with Nick Mason, Pink Floyd's drummer. I hope you'll enjoy listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. Please subscribe, follow, and most of all, review our podcast. It means a lot to us. If you do like it, why don't you share it with your friends? Don't forget to tag us on social media at ICMP London if so. Hi Charlie, how are you? I'm really good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. It's really exciting to uh to have you as one of my guests. It's a pleasure to be called a guest. Thank you for having me. Let's break the ice with the first question, question about music. It kind of makes sense. What was the first piece of music or record or album or in whatever format that you listened to that made you think, this is my place, this is what I love, this is what I'm into? Um, hopefully, when you ask this, everyone has an answer, because I definitely, I definitely have an answer. Well, maybe even more than one. Yeah, probably. I think when I was, when I was growing like my parents owned a pub, so I grew up in a pub, and I was always very aware of like music and how music affected people, you know, not just when they were drunk, but in general, how it kind of brought people together. Um, so I always, I always loved music, but I didn't really, you know, I didn't know that I loved it in the way that I love it now, if that makes sense. Um, I think it was, it was, I was probably about like 11 or 12 and I was at my friend's house and it was a guy called Adam Daly, who was like, at that point in my life, he was the, I thought he was like the coolest person ever. He played guitar, he had like long hair. He was just, he was just cool. Um, and he played, he gave me an album. He used to sit in his room and just listen to records. And I just used to listen to him playing guitar because I couldn't play anything. And um, yeah, he gave me uh, an album by the Foo Fighters, which is probably not a, probably not, you know, I don't know if it's like a traditional kind of, you know, song that changes your life. I don't know. It could be. Which, which record was it? It was Colour and the Shape, a song called Everlong. I mean, it's a, it's a total banger, but. I, I think it was the first time when I ever felt like I'd been missing something, if you know what I mean. And I heard just the intro, even now, like if I hear the intro, I'm like, this is just the greatest sound I've ever heard. That first little dun 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 dun, just the way that it's like, uh, now yeah. I know how they made that sound. But at the time, I was just like, what is this? This is ridiculous. 
and then like everything else in it i think the track is almost like in my opinion is like perfect it's got amazing melodies and awesome drums like everything it's just like i don't know it's like hook after hook after like wicked bit after wicked bit and i i i literally anytime i listen to it i don't know if anybody else gets this but i get this a lot with music they're like little time capsules where i can i just hear it and i'm back like like being a kid or a teenager yeah yeah yeah, yeah definitely songs remind me of people and faces and not even people that i was with listening to the song they just remind me of really weird things and i can be like back in adam's room with his like crappy he had like a crappy cd player like a plastic an old one where you had to like press the top and it opened and you put the cd and pressed it down again and i can literally be there stood in front of that right now thinking about that so that was that was kind of it for me and then i went home and i was like pleaded to my mum to either play drums or guitar uh drums was a no um, you couldn't turn them down they were just going to be loud yeah. and I'd, I've never, you know, I've, I can imagine when you're learning drums, they probably don't sound very good for a long time until you, you know. A lot of banging, probably. Yeah. At least with guitar, there's like a little bit of a payoff. You know, you can, you can learn a song pretty quick on a guitar and at least you can make noise that sounds like something. So, yeah, we, we settled on a guitar and that was kind of it, really. Yeah, that, that, yeah that, that one song just completely changed my life, I think. So can you play Everlong on guitar now? I can play Everlong. Okay, fair enough. You can play that whole album. I was just right. waiting for the Foo Fighters basically to need a, a replacement guitarist. So I made sure I learned their whole back catalogue, just in case, you know. <laughs> I guess you never know. You never know. Dave Grohl might phone me up one day. And I'll be like, yeah, I remember them all, Dave, don't worry. Okay, I need to show off a little because I basically saw Dave Grohl. I think it was 2019. I saw him playing at Moth Club as a surprise guest. And a friend of a friend kind of told me that he was going to come up and and common stage and he did with rick astley and me and my partner who was a music photographer like we went down really early and queued and we were sort of like front row so literally dave Grohl was like in front of me and it was amazing sorry why have you done this to me why <laughs> and he played all the bangers and i mean it was such a cool down-to-earth guy i was literally in front of him like i could have touched him if i wanted to <laughs> he was like so so chill and so cool. So but he was awesome. But he was awesome, yeah. I mean, like, I saw the Foo Fighters at Reading Festival, um, like, years later after I discovered them. And it was, like, literally the best gig of my whole life. I, I don't remember what they played. I just, I was just in, like, being, like, 10, 15 feet away from me, however, however far away they were. And I spent hours just being crushed at the front, just waiting, waiting for the Foo's to come on. Um, and yeah. I do like the fact that Dave is Dave Grohl is like a really nice person, like that really like it really it really satisfies my soul that he's a really nice guy. He's obviously just wicked at music. The start of something was the start of something. So from playing guitar, how did you get into audio engineering? Well, that was a long. So I like I said, my parents owned a pub, and I did a lot of when I was. When I was a kid I, or like a teenager and stuff, I did loads of like summer jobs where I worked on like, at like events, like I worked for an event catering company. So they just did stuff like the Grand National or like Wimbledon or whatever. And I just had to go as like a general kind of worker, whatever. But alongside all this, I was always in bands and stuff, but I never kind of, I was never disciplined enough as a musician. I don't think like I learned what I wanted to learn. I learned like riffs and solos and and then I never really backed it up with any kind of like music knowledge, which, you know, I've had to kind of teach myself later in my life, which has been a lot harder. 
but I was just, yeah, I just wanted to learn solo. Um, so yeah, so I went and I did, I did a, a really useful degree for music uh, in hotel and restaurant management. <laughs> yeah, I learned how to cook and clean at professional level. And um, then while I was doing that, I did a, I was working at like a few bars and then a nightclub and stuff. And as I was leaving uni, my, the, the owners of the club wanted me, they were going to open a new club and they wanted me to kind of manage it. And I thought, well, you know, it's a job. Why not? But it was actually kind of that job that pushed me into the music industry. Not because it took me there, because I hated it, actually. I was, I was what, like 22, 23 at this point? And I think the, the owners of the club, they were really nice, but they were, they were all, I guess the, the main owner was like about 60 and he just used to come in and sit in the office and do the paperwork. You never saw him ever again. He'd just disappear and come back, make sure he's still, you know, the money's still coming in and then he'd go away again. Uh, and like a partnership owner and he used to just be in the club all the time and he was in like his mid to late 40s a little bit older than I think you should be at a club personally but I kind of I think when you're like 18 or 17 maybe the thought of owning a nightclub is quite cool but then when you get a little bit older it's kind of not and I used to there was loads of like when I was a, I was a bartender there and that was really fun and like everyone was my friend you know everybody were the, we were friends you know and then when you become a boss like you know, strange when that happens, when that you, you kind of have to change, you can't be, you know, fun behind the bar all the time, you have to kind of be responsible a little bit. And I just didn't really enjoy it. And there were loads of like, loads of opportunity, loads of times when there were fights, or you know, I had to speak to the police or like ambulance, and just for like drunk stupidity and like silly things that you just look back on and you think, wow. So I kind of, I talked to I talked to over a lot with my girlfriend, who was a really big kind of, she was like the push towards music for me. Yeah, there was one night, I think, when there was these two guys had a massive fight and it almost, you know, it resulted in like prosecution and were like really serious thing. And I was sat with the police at like 6.30 in the morning going over like CCTV footage and stuff. And I just thought, you know what? I don't think I like this very much anymore. So I, like literally like the next day, I went in and spoke to the boss and I was just like, I, yeah, I'm just going to resign. I just handed in my resignation. And I'd found a, like a really short course in audio engineering and, and um, or was it sound engineering and audio technology um, at like a private college in East London. I was still living, I was in Oxford at this point and I was still living in Oxford and I was commuting. It was in Hackney and in Brick Lane. And they had two, I, I want to say locations because they weren't really like, it wasn't like ICMP. It wasn't, they had a, like a tiny little room and then a tiny little studio and um, there was about, I think about 10 students on the production course and, and most of them never really turned up for the lessons. So it kind of was just like me and the tutor sat in this studio, um, for like the whole time I, I went towards studio stuff because I hadn't got enough. I didn't have enough confidence really with like how I performed or how I played music. I was like, I'm not good enough to be in the music industry as like a guitarist. I could never be a session player. I can't sight read. I can't turn up to a session and just play stuff that I've never heard before. That's just not me. And I've always loved like writing and lyrics and creativity. And that was kind of why I, what I did when I played my guitar, it was never like, I never learned stuff. After a certain point, I never learned things. I just made stuff up. I like wrote lyrics. And so that was definitely like a, I was aware of that. So I thought, well, maybe production or studio stuff is better because I can learn how music is constructed. And when I first got into a studio, I was in, in the college, I was just, you know, mega intimidated by everything and I didn't want to touch anything and I didn't know how anything worked. I had no idea about microphones, 
like I didn't know a condenser mic from a dynamic mic. I just thought mics were mics, whatever. They don't, I don't know what they do. Um, the course wasn't amazing, but it gave me confidence to be able to realize that this is definitely where I want to go and I need experience and I need to know, I need to learn more about this. And um, so I started reaching out to studios in London and I emailed, sent CVs and emailed and like went and knocked on doors and stuff to like hundreds of different places. I think my return rate was about like two. I think I got. I was going to ask, how many no's did you get? I didn't get any no's actually. I just got no reply. Okay, which is probably even worse. It's, it kind of makes you feel worse. Yeah, I think I'd rather get a no than a nothing. But yeah, so the first no, the actual one no that I got was from Abbey Road, which uh, really that surprised about, to be honest with you. And then I found out later that actually Abbey Road just don't take, you know, random people. You have to go through a, like, ab you have to train to be at Abbey Road do a, like a specific course to be there so I kind of didn't take that personally so that's fine um but then the the other one was called Britannia Row and um it was a studio based in in east in west London uh, in Fulham and uh just a random studio right just a random studio yeah and I didn't know anything about it because I'd sent out like about 50 emails and then I was like oh I better do some research and it turns out like originally it was owned by Pink Floyd so Britannia Row is It's like Pink Floyd's old studio. Yeah, I got an email back from the boss who's now, you know, one of, actually one of my best friends, really, uh, uh, an amazing man called Jamie Lane, who owned the studio and his wife managed the studio when Pink Floyd were there all the time. And he said, yeah, well, you know, we're looking for some interns. So come in, have a cup of tea, sit down, we'll have a chat and see how we get on. And yeah, he said, okay, well, you know, we got on really well and... I'd done like I'd stayed up all night and I found out everything I could about that studio. Anybody that had ever worked there, any recent things like um, recent projects or like cool gear they had, even though I didn't know what it was, like, you know, some stuff they had that was cool. So I had something to talk about. How important was to like research all of this? I think it's so essential. I think a few years later, asking Jamie why he gave me a job, it was because my email just sounded all right. I didn't. I just, I found who the manager was. So I directly emailed Jamie and I said, you know, I know basically nothing about everything in a studio and I'm doing this course and it's really great, but I need, you know, I need professional kind of education because there weren't, there weren't tutors at the college I was at because it was BTEC. There weren't tutors like ICMP that, you know, actually worked in, in the industry. Most of them kind of did work in it once, maybe like, you know, a long time ago, but they didn't work in it like right now. So some of the stuff they were teaching you, I ended up kind of sandwiching my course into like two days so that I could do three days of internship at the studio and they didn't pay me. And so I still, I was still working in bars and, you know, scraping money and I was commuting from one side of London to the other. Now I'd moved to London. So, you know, it wasn't easy, but I was always the first one in the studio and the last one out of the studio. And I just, you know, I just literally just threw myself into it. But yeah, so that off the back of that, he just said, I just like the vibe of your email, really, because I was honest, I was straightforward. I didn't pretend that I'd done something, you know, successful. I didn't list, oh, I've done all these things. I know about this stuff. I was just like, I can make a nice cup of tea. I'm happy to like clean the toilets, mop the floors. I don't really care what I do. I would just come in and do whatever you want me to do, really. And so that's what I did. And I, I mean, I did some random stuff for them, like before the times when internet was fast we used to have to send files across to people and we use we transfer which is like a two gig limit 
I think now like the like internet generally is what like 60 100 megabytes a second back then it was like four megabytes a second so one of my jobs at the time was i had to watch we transfer uploads and that was literally all i did i'd just sit in the office and i'd just wait for these we transfers to complete so sometimes i'd be sat there for like 16 hours just sitting there watching a computer it's not even a joke just literally just sitting there watching so in the in the meantime i used to like fix cables and headphones i didn't know how to do any of that so youtube was super helpful I'd soldered a few things in my life, but nothing, you know, like guitar cables and stuff. So I, I, I made use of that, tidied things up and organized things, literally anything that I could do. And then after the, after I, I think about sort of four or five months, there was another intern as well, Jasper, who's again, like one of my best friends. And we ended up kind of engineering at Brick Road together for like five or six years after this. But the main in-house engineer at the time he was working on a project and um, a long-term project, which turned out to be London Grammar's first album. But he, um, he just left. Like one day he just phoned the boss and just said, look, Jamie, look, I just can't, I just don't want to do this anymore. So I'm just not going to come in. And I was literally the only person in the studio. Um, London Grammar were working with a producer, amazing producer called Tim Brand. And he was like due in in about 45 minutes. And so Jamie just turned to me and was like, Are you, could you reckon you could take on Studio One for, for the next couple of weeks? And Studio One was like this huge 60-channel vintage Neve console. We had racks of outboard gear. Like our patch bay was like, you could plug in like 1,200. It had like 1,200 points where you could plug in. And I was just like, well, you know, I'm not okay, really. I have no idea what I'm doing, but I'm not going to say no, am I? I'm not going to say no. So I just kind of got thrown in at the deep end, really. And I just had to learn as quickly as possible. And how did it go? It, well, I mean, it was all right. You know, I, <laughs> I survived. I, I blagged it, I think, is the best way I can explain it. But, when, you know, when you, when you can intern, you do sit at the back of the session sometimes if clients are okay with it. And you, what you learn from just watching people work is it's so useful. And you kind of see, I'm, I'm a very visual learner. So if I read something, I probably won't remember it. But if I watch something or I watch someone do something, it kind of sticks in my brain. So yeah, I knew enough to get by. And it was kind of midway through a session. So everything was kind of plugged in. And it was just, I just had to sit, operate Pro Tools, you know, not get anything wrong, not delete anything, not, not say anything, you know, stupid, just try and be like calm and collected and and yeah, I got through it. And for a long time, I was always terrified of sessions as well. I was always so nervous about doing something wrong and, and getting stuff wrong. I used to like, if sessions were late, I used to be like, oh, great, maybe they're not going to come in because then I don't have to do anything. I, but, you know, now I'm like, I can't even remember a time of when I didn't know how to use everything. Like now I'll go into any studio and it doesn't even phase me. It's almost like it's the, it's the best place I find to be sat in a studio is like the most comfortable I feel. And I, and I was so terrified of one for so long. I never, I never didn't go in though. Like I never woke up and thought, Oh no, I've got to go to work. I'm terrified or oh, I can't be, I can't be bothered to go to work. I never got that feeling, which is really weird. Even now I still don't get that feeling. Um, what was your coping mechanism for this? Was it just like, I'm just going to do it and that's it. I think I was so focused on it. I was so focused on making sure I learned everything. So like I got, when I got to, when I started the BTEC, uh, they were using Logic and Reason and Pro Tools. So I got, I couldn't afford all three. So I was like, right, Pro Tools is a studio one. So I'm going to buy that. And 
now you can just run Pro Tools, but back then you had to have an interface to run it at all. So I had a, a laptop and then an interface that I used to carry with me like on the bus because I couldn't get a train from Oxford to London. I had to get the bus. So I'd be on Pro Tools like on the bus home and on the bus back. And this used to take like six hours. It was like a six hour round trip from Oxford to London. So I had lots of time. And then I'd read like books about like mic techniques and placement. And I just, I just threw myself into a point where I just didn't, if I was ever going into a session where I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing, I would just fill my brain with as much knowledge as possible. I'd go on the internet, I'd talk to people, I'd ask people. Um, and of course, like when you're in a studio, like the, the boss, he was a drummer through the 70s and 80s, like toured with huge bands, played with amazing artists. So he and he'd been a producer, so he knew everything about studios. He knew how to use one. So he was always a he was just a source of endless knowledge. If you wanted to do something or didn't understand something, you could just go and ask. And he was well aware that we didn't know everything. But it's kind of how everybody starts out. You kind of learn all of this stuff, and then you get to a studio, and you like you have to learn the studio. So all that stuff is great, but don't really worry about that right now. Just focus in on getting this room right and then when you've learned this room then apply all the stuff that you already knew before if that makes sense so i just yeah i always just just tried as hard as i could to make sure that it worked so i think i found as well when i got to when i did my the b-tech which i'm actually still waiting for my 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 certification from that from that b-tech and that was that was about 12 years ago what I found was um, that I'd actually picked up so much information just from being at the studio, just from sitting around, not really doing anything, that when I went to college, I actually ended up like teaching the tutors stuff, which I found really like quite bizarre that they were, they were kind of teaching little techniques and stuff. And like I said, none of them had like industry experience. So they didn't, they didn't know all these little tricks and tips and stuff that you, you pick up just by watching someone do something. Um, so yeah, I found that I found that really interesting. And I was like, like, how much is there to learn? And it just never ends, I think. Even now, like I never I never become complacent with anything I do. I always try and learn something new all the time. Techniques, teaching's been amazing for that actually, teaching at ICMP, because it really does push your knowledge. And um and I yeah, I'm always I'd always I'd always encourage people to always do that as well. So going back to your job at Britannia Row. So you were promoted, like you became chief in-house engineer. And when you are someone like that in that position at a studio, that means that you don't get to pick the projects and the artists that you're working with. So how was that for you? How are you approaching jobs? Well, it kind of when you when you when I first started doing sessions, you just we had a huge a huge calendar in the in the office and there was like studio one was one um column and then, then studio two and studio three and studio one was like the main big platform like huge console room studio two was like a, a vocal booth like nice little writing room and then studio three was like a mixing room i guess but it also had a booth and so when we first when i first started i started a little bit before jasper who was the other intern at the same time as me and I just kind of took everything really like any session was fine and it really did like how it was organized was kind of like well the most senior engineer will get studio one and then the kind of next in line will get studio two and then the next in line will get studio three the intern will probably 
be like the runner in Studio One, and then we'll have an assistant who will probably be in Studio One, who's like, you know, that's when you patch everything in, and you're you're like the kind of person who puts the mics up, and then you have the main engineer who sits at the console and does like the recording. So there was always lots of people around. Um, yeah, and we had we had a really like random array of clients. Most kind of studios like Britannia Road do, where you don't necessarily get full projects, but you'll get kind of little bits of stuff, maybe a week here, a week there. We had, we had a few where they were like four or five months, but they were very rare. Um, so yeah, one day you could be doing, you know, you could be doing recording for a, an advert in German for soup. And then the next day you could be recording thrash metal drums. And then the next day you could be in Studio One with like One Direction or Little Mix. And then the next day you could be up in Studio Three mixing for somebody, you're mixing something, and then you're back in Studio Two for like a writing session where, you know, like we had loads of amazing writers used to work there. Um, there was one called Jamie Scott, who's like a, I mean, he's just got like so many number ones, I don't know how many anymore, but he wrote basically all of One Direction's number ones and he used to write there a lot. Like being in a room like that is awesome because you're not like, you don't say anything, obviously. You're not there to do any writing. You're there to record stuff and get people tea. And that's kind of it. And you kind of learn the room of like, okay, I don't need to be in there right now. I'm just going to stay out here and stay away until they need me. But so it was just really varied. And you also, because we weren't kind of contracted with studio, you were, you were still freelance. So some projects you worked on, you were then taken to other studios, which was quite cool. Um, so yeah, being at Brit Row meant that I got to work in some, like most of the studios in London, really. Um, some projects I worked on, did an amazing album for an artist called Kyla LaGrange years ago. It was the first, like one of the first where I was in from the very beginning all the way to the end of the project, which was really fun. And it was just me and her and Jack Wobb, her producer. Yeah, we just did like basically like four months in Studio One and took her songs from like demo all the way up to like finished mixes. And then they got mastered at Metropolis and she invited me down for like the mastering thing. So that was really cool. So we got to go and sit in like the mastering suite in Metropolis, which is this really kind of elaborate studio in, in Chiswick where it's got like five floors and everything's like, it's really like pristine and everything's big, literally everything's big. And so that was really cool. I got to work in like Abbey Road a load of times, which was amazing. Like the first time I ever worked there, I was just, it was like one of the best days of my life. So you made it there eventually. Eventually. I made it there in such a random way, which is also why it's quite cool that you have so much variation in your work. You never like, like any advice I'd give to everyone, anyone is like at the beginning, don't really say no to stuff. Because I got so many random opportunities that came from so many random sources. So there was a producer who used to work at Britannia Row a lot, and he just had constant work from various projects. And none of them were ever really like signed to majors or anything. They were kind of just what are called vanity projects where you kind of have quite a wealthy client and they want to make some music. And that was kind of his specialty. And that's cool. You know, people do that. It's not, it's not my cup of tea, but people do that. And he worked with this one client who was, she was like super, super rich, super, super rich, like one of the richest people in the country, rich, like super rich. And she was really good friends with obviously loads of influential people, but she, she kind of weirdly knew Nick Mason, who's the drummer from Pink Floyd. And the studio that I worked in was Nick Mason's originally. So Nick came down to record some drums for her, for her album, which was very cool. And I'd met Nick a couple of times because, you know, he still had connection with the studio and stuff. But then he asked me, because he really liked the sound of the drums, if I wanted to come and record him in Abbey Road. And I obviously said yes. 
and so that was that was random because we were in studio three where they did dark side of the moon and so i was sat waiting for everyone like he had a roadie still even though like he obviously doesn't tour that much anymore but he had a roadie that turned up with his his vintage red ferrari drum kit so he had a kit that was sprayed red by ferrari because he's got so many ferraris i think you definitely know you're in the presence of someone quite different when they have a you know a customized ferrari drum kit so he was kind of setting that up in the live room and then all the engineers from Abbey Road, they were putting up the mics. So we were just kind of hanging out in the control room in, in Studio 3. And he was telling me about why they worked in Studio 3 on Dark Side of the Moon. And, when they, and that's where they kind of mixed it and finished it off. And it's because they booked Studio 2 and they were going to be in there for months and months and months. And they were just kind of getting set up in the first few days. And the studio had a phone call from somebody and then some you know the studio manager came in and said i'm really sorry but we're gonna actually have to move you to studio three because we've got a high profile client coming in and it was john lennon so john lennon picked up the phone and been like oh hi i'm in london can you just uh whoever that band is in there can you just get rid of them for a few weeks and he said it was really it was he said it was amazing because it was really like it was really affirming to you that you're not the biggest you know you you're on the verge of making like one of the biggest albums that's ever been made but there was always someone out there who had it over you you know John Lennon could just call up and just whoever was in Studio Two, they just have to go. <laughs> it was a really that was a really bizarre situation, but it was very very cool, very very cool. But it, like, there's like a little cafe and stuff, and you, there's just like famous people everywhere all the time. And they were they were doing the score for The Hobbit at the time as well, because it was my first time at Abbey Road. I kind of got to know the engine, the, the assistant engineer quite well, and I was like, "Can you just give me a little tour?" And we kind of snuck into Studio One. And yeah, they were scoring The Hobbit, you know, and there was like a hundred piece orchestra and directors and composers everywhere. And I was like, oh my God, this is just the coolest thing ever. But yeah, so it was really varied, the amount of stuff we used to get and the, 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 the things you used to do was, was awesome. But it kind of, as, you, as it went on, there were times when, not that, not that it's, um, they were worth anything less, but if you'd done a couple of gigs with, you know, certain artists, you kind of didn't do them again. If that makes sense. I was actually going to ask you about something around this because like working with so many artists that you don't get to pick. Mm -hmm. Well, I suppose there must have been some sort of like more challenging experiences. And I want to know, you don't need to drop names whatsoever. I just want to know why were they challenging and how did you manage the challenge? The thing that I found the most challenging was that 99% of the time, any artist that came in was always really great. And even when we worked with, like, we did loads of stuff with Psycho. So we had loads of stuff with, like, One Direction and Little Mix. But then we also had, like, Adele mixed one of her albums there. And, like, Ed Sheeran would come in and do a lot of stuff. And the artists generally were always really lovely people. It was one of the only places where they can go, where they, they can just be normal because you're not supposed to treat them like anybody else. They're just, you know, it's another day. They're just a client. You know, they're not anybody in the studio. They are, it is the safety of the studio. They don't have to be anybody. They don't have to pretend. And obviously, you know, you are sworn to secrecy when there's big artists in. You're not allowed to post anything on social media. and all that. It's fairly obvious. Although there would always be fans outside the door. Like whenever we did stuff, especially with, with One Direction or Five Seconds of Summer, which were was really weird they never used to promote where they were but we did this one thing where we did a live a live performance on the bbc on bbc radio one and scott mills is a bbc radio one dj like came to the studio and they did like this live thing which was all totally bizarre but there was there was literally like about 300 people outside the studio because they'd all found out where it was 
and you just kind of open the door and I was like, oh, no, okay, I'm not going out there. And, you know, obviously, as soon as the door opens, they don't know if you're in five seconds of summer or not. They're just going to be like, oh, my God. So that was that was weird. But yeah, it was always it was never the artists whenever there was whenever there was an altercation or if it got a bit awkward, it was always like the entourage. So ten, it tended to be like if labels ever came down or, you know, corporates came down or if there was ever like a, a disagreement between producers. I always found that they were the hardest things to deal with because you couldn't really side with anybody and you couldn't really kind of get involved. And sometimes those, you know, labels would come down and the, the mood would completely change. And you kind of feel like, you know, you're almost being watched and everything you're doing is being assessed. And it kind of just completely... Less natural. Yeah, it really is. Because you're kind of, you're very aware that people are aware of you. Whereas normally it's like a very kind of relaxed environment and, you know, you have time. And you, even if you're doing vocals with stuff like, you know, with like One Direction where you have to do loads and loads of vocals, it's very, it's, it can be very chilled and it's fine. And that's kind of what it needs to be. But yeah, whenever there was, whenever there was labels or management, it always, it always just made the, the room a little, the, the ambience in the room very strange. So, but yeah, and after a while, you know, they were always very intense sessions as well, stuff like that. Psycho stuff was always really intense because you had a lot to do in a very short space of time. So you never had freedom to do anything like outside of the box. You just had to get everything done. You had Harry Styles for 40 minutes. They need to record the whole song. Go. There can't be a second over or a second earlier. They need to be on the money. So after a while, like if you had One Direction on your credit list, like Jasper and I, and then eventually a few other engineers we had, We'd all just kind of like almost like flip coins as to, <laughs> as to who was going to who was going to do. Oh, yeah, I did Little Mix last time. So you've got to do it this time. That was kind of how it was. And it wasn't because we didn't enjoy working on them. It's just because it's it, you're so hungry for like for your credit list, for your CV. And you want it to be, you know, as, as, as diverse as possible. So if it's somebody that first it was like, OK, we had a, a female engineer, Anne-Marie, like you haven't done you haven't worked with One Direction yet, or you haven't done a little mix session. So there you go, you can have a little mix session. And then, you know, a few months later, it's, it's different. It's like, oh, no, no, we, I've done that one. You can have that one. This No, oh, it's my go again. Okay, I'll do it. It's fine. Kind of changed. But it was, ne- it was never because they weren't nice or if it, w- it wasn't fun. It was just very intense. It was one of those where I'm not in the mood for that today, so you can do that. <laughs> and so going back to working on a wide range of different projects, you know, um, different artists, different genres, different, you know, purposes... What would you say is the best piece of advice that you could give um, when it comes to approaching a job that's not within your favorite genres, that's sort of like out of your remit, out of your comfort zone? The best, the best way to approach it is just like never... I learned more from working in genres of music that I knew nothing about than anything else, predominantly. It builds a whole new level of not only just respect for music, like I respect all kind of forms of music. Whereas when I was a teenager and when, you know, Everlong was the thing that changed my life, I was very, I was very focused on what kind of music I liked and what kind of music I didn't. And I think everyone's kind of that, you know, gets that. And now there's literally no music that I don't listen to. And it's all because of that. It's because of having so many different little tastes of things where you just, you realize how talented people are. And like how impressive it is to be good at any kind of genre of music, whatever, you know, whether you listen to it all the time and like it, it it kind of doesn't really matter. The way that you approach making music is kind of the same across any genre. It's about people. It's about how you work with people. It's about your kind of, you know, your vibe as a person. And 
any kind of bits of information you know you know like technical stuff it can be transferred from one genre to another you know if you can record vocals well you can record any kind of music if you can use a studio you can record all kinds of music yeah i'd never be afraid of yeah i just say don't ever be afraid of working on stuff that you don't like just try it the worst that's going to happen is that you know it's not going to sound as good as you want it to that's probably it you know i've yeah i've learned so much and i, I always say yes really you know to, to new projects or different kinds of music just in case you might land on something that you just really love and you think, wow, this is this is great. I want to make this all the time. I think sort of like keeping it diverse is also really important from like an income stream standpoint because nowadays, especially, you want to ensure that like income is coming from different sources, not just relying on the one, you know? And I think I always, um, I always kind of just, I don't want to say I blag it if I don't know because that's not the right term. But it's kind of that fake it till you make it thing where it's like, okay, I'm not sure I'm 100% on this, but I'm going to give it a go. You know, what's the worst that's going to happen? And and I think that's, you know, doing stuff at like when I went to like Abbey Road to go back to that story, I was I was so intimidated on that day. You know, I'm going in with like one of the most famous drummers from one of the most famous bands ever into the most famous studio. And I'm surrounded by people that I 100% know are way more experienced and knowledgeable than I am. But I can't think about that bit. I need to think about that I'm here to do what I'm here to do. And I can learn from all these other people rather than be afraid that I'm not going to know what they know. Because the only way they know what they know is because they learned it from someone else. And that's so it's always like there's always experiences to be to be had. And that's where you kind of build your your general knowledge about music in you know, and production and everything. So yeah, working on a variety of genres is a great way to do that because you you have to test your knowledge and test your skills. And you're not going to know, you know, if you go into something and you've never made it before, you're not going to know how to do it. So there's only one way to find out how to do it. And that's to try and do it, in my opinion. Anyway, I think that's definitely a piece of advice I'd give to my students, you know, go try it, see how you get on. And so now you're based at the Kong Studios, which were founded by the Kinks. It's like <laughs> you like to keep it consistent with these like huge rock bands that made history. And the list of artists who have worked there and like have recorded there is like the Bee Gees, Arctic Monkeys, Massive Attack. Uh, I don't know. The list is. So how is it? How is it for you? So Conk is, is a wicked studio. I've worked with, so I've teamed up with a really good friend of mine, uh, a, an amazing keys player called Andrew Yates. And we've known each other. We actually met at Britannia Row and he's, he was a session player. And we've kind of teamed up as like a writer producer duo. And um, we kind of started that kind of mid last year, I guess, J July kind of time. We've always worked together and we've always worked at Conk. And the main room at Conk is, it's got a beautiful, like, vintage neve console it's got just some of the most amazing gear but it's got a beautiful live room an amazing grand piano and it's just really like a, just a nice vibe you know you go in there and you're just like oh this place just makes you feel comfortable you just sit and you just and the, the like the live room is not any different from like when it was first built so like all the kink stuff all the people you mentioned they all worked in that room on that console in that space and nothing's changed um, but it's like a it's like a maze of different rooms. So it has its huge main main studio one. Uh, and then it's got like loads of archive rooms where like Ray Davies from the Kinks, like he still owns it. He goes there, he's you know, he he is that's his studio. So it's got all this like vintage guitar collections and like loads of 
oh, like loads of like fly cases and touring stuff just with the kinks written on it that's just got you know history in it that's amazing it's an amazing like inspiring place to be and yeah we've we've worked there we always take our projects there when we have the budget or when we get into the end of a project when we know right we've got to go into a studio and the the manager linda the last time we were there before christmas uh just before the kind of second lockdown um she said oh well, we've got a writing room upstairs that's that's going to become available in a few weeks would you guys be up for taking it and this was like i mean for us it's kind of it was just like karma you know it was just kismet this was like perfect we work here all the time we need a writing space we need somewhere we can base ourselves and yeah it's it's been amazing it's been amazing to be there the guy who lives above us lives it's i mean he does kind of live there actually he's there pretty much all the time uh, there's a guy called miles james he's just done like tom odell's album that's just about to release and um he was he had like the foals in there the other day just like jamming <laughs> casual as you do um and there's like there's just loads of it's a really nice like kind of little family of people and, and it, it's it's very cool to work there and um yeah very fortunate and it is a yeah it's another it's another old school studio but they just got such vibe like they just feel nice and comfortable and we do writing sessions and you know occasionally we get really nice you know friendly rates for studio one which is normally like a thousand pounds a day or whatever but you know occasionally they might get cancellation and linda will say oh studio one's free tomorrow do you want to use it you can have it you know 100 150 quid or whatever and we're like uh yes and then we just agree and then we just phone as many people as possible you're free for a writing session you're free for a session you're free for a session um so it's great and we wouldn't have that obviously if we didn't if we weren't based there so it's been it's been amazing really it's been really cool and now talking about your work at icmp I just want to know simply why did you uh, start teaching and, you know, how is it for you? Just just tell me a little more about it. Well, I was, I've always kind of been interested in teaching. My mom was a teacher, so it's, always, it's kind of in the family, I guess. And it's kind of like I said earlier, like the only reason I know anything about production is because of education. It's because of education from, from others. So... Um, I thought, well, you know, how can I do, how can I help people? And I used to really enjoy when we had interns at Brit Row, um, like, you know, that you were, te you were teaching them. And the, uh, one of our main interns is now Damon Albans, like main engineer, a guy called Sam, Sam Eglerton. He's just awesome. Amazing, amazing engineer, amazing guy. Just wonderful. One of these people is wonderful to, to be around them. It just makes you happy. Um, but he kind of didn't really know anything when he started. And like, I was like that. And And now, yeah, he's, you know, in touring with the gorillas and, you know, just Damon Albans, like, right-hand guy, which is very cool. Um, but, yeah, and I kind of, I, like, I, I've, I've known of ICMP for a while because I've a lot of musicians that I use studied at ICMP, and I know people from the industry that have been to ICMP. And, um, and yeah, in, in a kind of my normal fashion, I just randomly emailed Tony and said do you need a, do you need a tutor and then i came in and i met jason o'brien and ken and and we kind of went to the coffee shop and had a chat and yeah and that was that was kind of it but i really wanted to just any knowledge that i had that i could pass on i just wanted to make sure it went to a good home if that makes sense um and just i was so fortunate when i was able to learn from people that had industry experience and and could tell me 
oh, I did this on this project and then they could play me the project and I'd be like, oh my God, that's amazing. And they know that, that's that's so cool. Um, so I kind of thought, well, maybe it might be a good, you know, a good point in my career where I can share something or I can help people or, you know, kind of encourage people that it's a good, you know, it is a fun industry. There's plenty of horror stories about it, but it is actually a fun place to work. Um, and I think it's good. Like I would, I would have been super inspired as a student whenever whenever I met anyone that had achieved stuff or worked somewhere cool or it was always really I found it really fascinating um because it is that also reinforcing the fact that you're just a we're all just the same you know we all have we all have the same base knowledge when we start which is zero and we have to learn everything ourselves you know everybody had to learn everything from scratch and it's and it seems like a mountain to climb all the stuff especially in production and studios all the stuff you have to learn but actually it's if you take it slow it's kind of it's kind of all right and if i can learn it then i anyone 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 can can learn it i think yeah so that's that's why i also really like it i never taught anything before really in terms like i was never like a proper like teacher if that makes sense so i would never study teaching or anything but it's really satisfying i this year was the first i started about three years ago and this year my first year that I ever taught a graduating and it's that first time which sounds really cheesy that you get that kind of like you've seen them grow which sounds really terrible but like the way when I when I first met them and you know everyone was kind of very nervous and quiet and now they're you know these these amazing producers making this awesome sounding music and it was a real a real payoff that I just never kind of anticipated because I know you always hear the story oh you know it's so satisfying to teach because you and I never really kind of considered that before and then yeah you suddenly get a whole group of students who have you remember what they all they they wanted to know how to do this or they wanted their music to sound a certain way and then suddenly it does and they know how to do it and it's really like yeah it's a really satisfying job um it's a bit like yeah working in a studio when you end at the end of the day if you've written a song or something and you can sit down and listen to it and be like oh yeah that's cool we've done something that's something we've achieved something today so i think that's kind of why i do it um really which is a great reason yeah if that definitely. was an all right answer yeah definitely it was cheesy but lovely yeah yeah that's, <laughs> I'm, I'm all about that so i got to the end of my question list but there is one thing that i want to know okay are you still into cooking because that's what you started originally do you know i actually love cooking i really love it I still cook a lot, um, almost yeah, almost all the time actually. My girlfriend cooks as well, but I think I just like, I like cooking. Yeah, yeah, I, and I'm very like a, I'm very like a Jamie Oliver cook, where I'm just like, what we got? Yeah, we're just throw it in, fine. Okay, so maybe we'll think of some sort of like, music and food combo at some point. Now I know who to ask. I don't ask me if I have a signature dish. That's the thing is that you're supposed to have like a signature dish. No, not necessarily. You're like a proper cook. I think having that skill of, you know, being able to improvise, you know, seeing, checking what's in the fridge and just make something out of it and succeed at it. I think it's it's a case of sort of like splitting cooks between people who thoroughly have to plan and manage everything and the people who, you know, just go with the flow. Yeah, it's kind of a little a little bit of a summary of my career so far, actually. It's improv- <laughs> improvising as much as possible, learning along the way. <laughs> and eventually making it. 
hopefully hopefully yeah i mean i don't know if there's ever an end point to the make it it's a it's a continuous a continuous thing i don't want it to i don't want it i don't want to be i don't want to have made it if that makes sense i meant you know to like being able to have it as your daily job that's that's pretty amazing i think yeah i do appreciate it i mean obviously you know you do become it's a job you know so you do become complacent sometimes and you know things annoy you as they would any job you do but it is it is the rewards you get are, are worth it at the end of the day and i think weirdly actually that degree helped me the degree in cooking and cleaning because it was very being around creatives is is about kind of making i think what makes a really good producer is someone who makes you feel comfortable and if you're comfortable enough in a room to be creative and you know when i do writing sessions with people it's most of the time i've never met them before and they've never met me so within a you know within an hour you have to kind of build this rapport to a point where sometimes you know artists may tell me stuff that they don't tell their closest relatives or their partners you know secrets that they because they know they're in the safety of the studio and they just feel comfortable so that's the kind of like bartender in me i think always <laughs> is always still there <laughs> they just yeah yeah thank you so much uh charlie it was really really fun and insightful and yeah just fun it was it. fun thank you so much um yeah thanks for inviting me i hope uh, i've i've been useful definitely of course you have and hope to see you in person at some point definitely for sure can't wait 